John chapter 20 verse 19 says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, and Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be believe, unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And Father, we humbly ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit to give us an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church through this section of your word as we open it together. We ask that you would speak to our hearts in a personal in a direct and powerful way by your Spirit's voice. Lord, take away those things within us that would keep us from hearing what you would want to say this morning. We want to have a receptive heart and an ear that's attentive. We believe there are things that you want to say to us. So Lord, show yourself to us this morning and speak to us in personal ways we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> You know, what perhaps do you think is one of the strongest desires within our Lord Jesus? I think there are probably many different things that we could come up with an answer to that. But I think certainly one of the strongest desires of Jesus simply is that people would come to believe in him. That people would experience and encounter him in a very personal in a very direct way and as a result one of Jesus's foremost agenda I think is helping people to believe in him because as we believe in him we then experience him and we're able to receive from him the things that he offers to us and therefore Jesus I think works specifically to try and stimulate faith within the hearts of people I think that Jesus is continually trying to bring believers to a deeper faith in him, a stronger trust. And I think for the unsaved that certainly that is the chief agenda of Jesus trying to stimulate faith in their heart toward him. And that is really what exactly we see Jesus doing here in our passage this morning, trying to stir up faith toward him 
in the lives of the disciples and those he's encountering here. Remember the backdrop of John chapter 20. Jesus has risen from the dead and immediately after rising from the dead, we saw last time that he made his first appearance to one of his followers, particularly not to one of the disciples, Peter, James, John, one of those we might expect, but Jesus' first resurrection appearance actually is to Mary Magdalene. And he gives her assurance that it is him. And after a powerful encounter with the risen Lord and then one of her loving embraces we saw of him in a few words, Jesus then sends Mary, after revealing to her that he's alive, back to the disciples to go and give word to them that he has conquered death, that he's returning to heaven and that he's going to be with his father once again as a victorious Lord. In fact, we saw, if you look back at verse 18, our last verse from last time, it says, Mary then came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now, Mark 16 then indicates to us that when she went and told those who had been with him as they were mourning and weeping, still discouraged, over his crucifixion and death it says that when they heard that Jesus was alive and had been seen by her it says they did not believe that is when they first heard testimony that Jesus was alive they weren't quick to believe as Mary gave testimony of this encounter she had with Jesus telling them I've seen the Lord he spoke to me in person the disciples apparently were finding it hard to believe her story. They were struggling with doubt at this point still in their own hearts. Now it's with that setting we then come to verse 19. It tells us there, look at the text, that same day at evening, so a few hours later being the first day of the week, so we're now at Sunday evening, that night of Jesus' resurrection, it says, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled together for fear of the Jews. So notice that the disciples, it seems very clear that after Jesus' arrest, remember, they all fled. After they watched him brutally be uh, beaten and suffered, and then ultimately Jesus was executed, it seems that as the result of those things, they were fearful that the Jews, probably like you and I would be, were going to come after them next as Jesus' followers. So they, it seems, out of fear and worry, are now assembled together. We find them in this room with the doors shut, very likely locked as well, kind of a locked up room. And the picture here is they're hiding away in fear not wanting to be found or discovered. They're kind of hiding away, assembled together. And it's at this point, with the doors closed in the room together as the disciples are there, it says, verse 19, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he then showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were glad, I bet they were, when they saw the Lord. So the indication here, notice, is Jesus did not come and knock on the door and say, hey, can someone open up? It's me, let me in. It doesn't seem that Jesus walked through the door by opening it in the typical way we would expect in coming into the room. What the text indicates to us happened 
is that basically Jesus just appeared right in the midst of the room. The Bible purposely tells us here in the next account, the doors being shut, the indication the Holy Spirit is trying to clearly give to us is in a closed room with the door shut, all of a sudden Jesus just stepped into the midst of the presence of the disciples that were assembled there, gathered together. He appeared basically out of nowhere. He just instantly shows up, and you can imagine quite a shock this was to their system. As they're all assembled together, there's no Jesus, and then all of a sudden, whoa, there's Jesus right in the midst of them. He basically steps out of the spiritual or the eternal dimension and steps right into the physical realm, steps right into their midst, having now his resurrected glorified body, Jesus passed through the doorway that transitions somehow from the spiritual dimension to the physical or material dimension. And whatever that doorway may be, Jesus transitions from the spiritual into the temporal and appears right in their midst. And we see from the text here in the Bible that the spiritual realm and the physical realm apparently coexist. At the exact same time, they are two different dimensions and certainly different in their makeup, but operating simultaneously and apparently able to have an effect and impact upon one another and can be at times crossed over from one dimension to another at times. Keep in mind, Jesus now has his resurrected, glorified, eternal body of which you and I, the Bible says, will have the same type of body someday. So it's going to be pretty fun. When you get your glorified body, apparently somehow there's some capability where physical barriers and restrictions its a physical, tangible, tangible body, a physical frame. But yet apparently there's this ability beyond the natural human ability that we now possess. So Jesus comes from the spiritual realm, steps directly into the physical realm. And apparently you see these two realms have an impact and an influence upon one another. That's why when we experience spiritual warfare, we experience it at times in the things of the flesh because these two realms coexist and possibly, perhaps, they're not as far separated from one another as we often think they are. We often have this perception that heaven is like some faraway place in some distant location. What we don't perhaps know, it seems that the spiritual realm and the physical realm apparently have crossover and influence and impact upon one another because Jesus just steps right out of the spiritual into the physical realm and says he came and stood in the midst and speaks to them a word of peace to calm their hearts and notice the first thing Jesus does is it says there in verse 20 that after he spoke to them the first thing he did is as he showed them his hands and his side so the first thing Jesus does as he reveals himself as being alive is he shows them his wounds from the cross. He purposely draws their attention to the remaining scars that are still there from the nail prints in his hands and the wound in his side from the spear that was thrust into him upon the cross and understand therefore these wounds from the crucifixion are forever apart of the glorified eternal body of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are now forever a part of his existence. And the question may become why? Why is the first thing that Jesus does of all things 
without them asking to show them his hands and his side, to show them his wounds. Well, I think possibly two things. First of all, it was no doubt to convince and assure them it was truly him. This wasn't a phantom. This wasn't some figment of their imagination. This, this wasn't some struggle or imagination. He wants to demonstrate to them this is the very same person who had been with them for all those years, the very same person that they watched brutally beaten and pierced and hung upon a cross and who they watched die before their eyes and who was buried in a tomb and this is him and he's alive. He's alive from the dead. He has come back and conquered the death process and those wounds prove Jesus truly died clinically dead and Jesus this same Jesus was now alive that he had resurrected from the grave Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 there the risen Jesus makes this statement Jesus says I am he who lives and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore so he revealed to them those wounds to strengthen their faith in him to let them see this is really him He's really alive. Our Lord has defeated the power of death to help them believe, to remove doubt and unbelief from their hearts. Jesus wanted to strengthen their faith. He wanted them to confidently believe in him as his followers and to believe correctly about him that he was a risen victorious Lord who had conquered the power of death. And I think another reason that Jesus did this to show them his wounds also was to reveal to them the depths of his love. Think about this. Here Jesus has just conquered the power of death. He's in his glorified, resurrected form as king of kings, as the glorified Lord. And as he shows up with his disciples in that first moment, he doesn't impress them with his glory and his power. I mean, he could have, after he had just risen in such glory and power, found ways to show them the strength of his power and his glorified body. But what is he concerned with? Instead, he shows them his wounds. He shows them the marks of his humility and the humble sacrifice he made. Why? Because he loved them. So he shows them his wounds because what's foremost on his heart and mind is I want you to believe in me, yes, but above all else, I want you also to believe how much I love you. Do you see how much I love you? If you've questioned in any way because of what hard things you've gone through that you still perhaps can't put all the pieces together, Jesus, the first thing he does is he says, look, do you see the marks of my love? And he shows them his wounds so that it would be pressed upon their heart his great, great love. The scars from his wounds reveal eternally the depths of Jesus' love. That song, the nails in his hand, the nails in his feet, what? They show me how much he loves me. The thorns on his brow, they tell me how much he loves me. You know, it's interesting in Revelation chapter 5, John gets a uh, revelation of the throne of God, the heavenly realm. And as he sees the throne of God, it tells us in Revelation chapter 5, he says, I looked and behold, listen, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain. So as John sees 
the heavenly throne in the midst of the throne as he looks at Jesus somehow he bears the marks of his slaughter and the fact that he was wounded for our transgressions and demonstrated his love in dying for us and it says in Revelation 5 everyone fell down before this lamb in worship and sang with a loud voice you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing Please understand, ladies and gentlemen, part of our, listen, eternal experience in heaven is going to be continuously looking at the throne of God. And as we look to the throne of God, we are going to see upon Jesus the marks of his suffering. Somehow he still bears in his resurrected form the marks of his suffering that allowed him to redeem us to God to save us and something about that for all of eternity and the immensity of his love as we see it is going to just overwhelm us again and again that's going to make us want to cast our crown at his feet and continually be compelled to worship him not because of oh well lord you did this or you fixed that problem or or you allowed me to have this happen in my life it's going to be one thing you died for me you sacrificed for me you this amazing king you did this for me and something about the reality of his love as we see it in our eternal experience is going to be the thing that compels us to keep worshiping him forever and ever so he shows them the marks of his love for them by demonstrating the wounds in verse 20 then says when the disciples saw jesus it says they were glad when they saw the lord now let me just say that is probably the biggest understatement in the whole bible it's got to be, right? They were glad when they said, that's the best word you could come up with, John. They were glad. You know, interesting, other translations say they were overjoyed. They rejoiced. What's happening here is what Jesus told them a few days before is now taking place. In John chapter 16, Jesus said this just a day or so or a few days before these things happen. Jesus said in John 16 to the disciples, a little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. Therefore, you now have sorrow. But when I see you again, your heart will rejoice and your joy. No one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. And that's exactly what's happening now. Their hearts were sorrowful when they saw Jesus die. But now they see Jesus is alive and he says, when that happens, your hearts are going to be filled with joy. And that's what's happening now. I assure you, every question in their heart was answered at that moment. And they were overflowing with joy. They were filled with just an excitement because Jesus' presence and his revelation to them made their hearts glad. And can I just say by way of application... There is nothing that can bring more satisfaction to a heart and there is nothing that can make the human heart more glad than when a person has a personal encounter with Jesus. When somebody has a personal encounter with Jesus, when Jesus steps into your world and reveals himself to you for the first time and you see him for yourself and he shows you that he's real and maybe all your life people are telling you he's real and your mom and dad are raising you Lord and trying to convince you that he's real but then you see that he's real 
You see it for yourself. And you hear His voice speaking to you. And you sense His love for you in the first way in your life and His Lordship and it happens directly to you. There is no more satisfying and overjoy experience that a person can have in their life than when that takes place. The disciples here certainly were glad. And then verse 21, it goes on to say, Jesus then spoke to them, saying to them, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So Jesus now gives the disciples his initial commission that they were going to be his ambassadors now to go forth and to speak and to represent him. They, as well as we, as his followers, are to go forth to reach a lost and dying world for which Jesus came to seek and save. And Jesus reminds them that the Father had first sent him into this world and we know Jesus came into this world to do what was necessary so that the world could be saved Jesus came being fully God and fully man in touch with divinity and in direct touch with humanity as the bridge between the two he lived the sinless life no human being can live on our behalf and then he stepped into our place providing the righteousness that God requires as a man and then died sacrificially as our substitute And he took the punishment for our sins upon the cross, shedding his blood to provide forgiveness of sins, and then rose again victoriously over the power of sin and death to be a living Savior to now grant people, because he's alive and he can, forgiveness of sins when they ask. To give people the gift of eternal life because he's the living eternal son of God. And Jesus was continually, therefore, in the world calling sinners to repentance telling people to follow him, beckoning people to believe upon him. And Jesus says here to the disciples and to you and I, even as the Father has sent me, I also now, he says, send you. Now I'm sending you. What he's telling the disciples is he's saying, as I'm going to return to heaven, you will now go forth and continue my ministry in this world. You will now represent me. You will now do the ministry that I have done on this earth as I am alive to help you. As my followers, he says, I give you my authority and I'm now appointing you, even as the Father appointed me, to be sent forth into the world to seek and to declare how people may be saved through me. And we know that Jesus, before he ascends back into heaven, will give an expanded explanation of what it meant to be sent into the world. In Mark 16, Jesus there told the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The language literally is, as you are going into all the world, preach the gospel to everyone. Often we think, go into all the world. Okay, great. And I'm just, I feel so bad. I mean, I, these people, they go to Africa and they go to Iran and they go to China and they, they go to South America. And I don't go. And listen, the Bible doesn't say you have to go into all the world. The Bible says, as you are going. Yes, some people are going to be called to be missionaries to foreign lands. And that's a spiritual calling. And you better be sure of God sending you to go to Africa. Because there are a lot of people who went and they weren't sent. And you ain't going to make it if you just went and you weren't sent. If God calls you to go to Africa, then go to Africa. You'll be safer there than you will be in America. And preach the gospel there. But Jesus said, as you are going, 
That's the language. As you are going into all of your world, preach the gospel in your school, in your job, in your neighborhood, among your family, among anyone unsaved. Jesus, of course, in Matthew 28 tells us, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he then said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them the things that, that I have taught you to observe and lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Again, oh, go and make disciples of all nations. See, you're wrong, Pastor Tony. We have to go, we have to, go to all nations. No, you don't. Come with me to Atlantic City. Every Friday night, we're with lots of different nations. I love it because I don't like to travel. I hate missions trips, quite frankly. I just, I do. I'm just being very candid. I, I've gone on mission trips and, and, and I've let, but it's out of obedience. And all, I'm not a world traveler. I love the fact I can be with other nations and go sleep in my own bed. I don't have to leave my family because I'm a sissy. Honestly, I ask them. When I go on vacation, they were, were separated from each other. They say, Dad, you don't have to call again. Stop. <laughs> yes, I do for me. <laughs> We can impact, I mean, we live in a place in America where there are lots of nations around us. Again, if God calls us to impact the nations, certainly we should go as the Lord leads. We as a church send finances into other nations to empower people, to minister in other nations. But all around us, we have people that need Jesus. The question isn't, should we go or should we share with anybody? The question just is, are we? Are we? with the world that the Lord has sent us out into. Well, verse 22 says, when Jesus had said this, he then breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus having promised so many times, we saw it in John's gospel, that after his departure, he was going to send them someone else to help them spiritually. He kept saying, I'm going away, but don't worry. I'm going to send the comforter, the Holy Spirit to help you, to indwell you. Well, now he does this. It says here, verse uh, 22, that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now listen, I'm not super smart, but I think when Jesus Christ breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, it happens. I think you receive the Holy Spirit. And here, I think it's beautiful because just like in the book of Genesis when man was first created by God, it says in Genesis 2-7 <clears throat> that when God originally created Adam, the first man out of the dust of the ground, he breathed, remember it says he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living being. After God created the physical frame of Adam, God, the author of life, the one who has life, breathed into man and the first man, it says, became a living being. He received physical life, but more than that, he also received spiritual life, the life of God. Remember, Adam had fellowship with God at that very point. Him and God walked together, they communed. And Adam received both physical and spiritual life because God breathed it into him. But then what happened? Man sinned. And when man sinned, death entered the world, but not just physical death, but he also lost spiritual life and the capacity to have fellowship with God. That's why Adam then hides from God. And he's now spiritually dead. And what does he need? He needs to be regenerated with life again. And here, after the work of salvation is completed, Jesus, the eternal God, alive from conquering the power of death, for who? Humanity, for mankind, as the Lord of all, 
Here's Jesus now. What does he do? He breathes spiritual life back into the disciples, into the souls of those who had believed in him, declaring with authority as God, receive the Holy Spirit. And at this moment, the first disciples are indwelt with and sealed with the Spirit of God. The disciples become the first believers, if you would, to be regenerated by the Spirit and to experience the person of the Spirit of God residing within, dwelling within them. As Jesus promised, this would happen after he rose from the dead. And this experience is now available and happens to all those who trust in Jesus Christ as salvation, for salvation now. This is all of our experiences. We receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. We receive a work of the Spirit to experience salvation. It tells us in Titus chapter 3, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, listen, through the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It says, which was poured out upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So when you choose to accept Jesus Christ, believe upon him as Savior and Lord, and ask him to come into your life, this is what happens. The spirit of the living God, in a sense, is breathed into your life and you are regenerated. And you come back alive because you were spiritually dead before that. We're not born with spiritual life. We must be regenerated. And this is exactly what happens in a sense to all of us. We're made alive spiritually. And when we call upon the Lord for salvation, his spirit comes in, makes us alive to God, to fellowship. We receive eternal life. And we are also, Ephesians 1 says, then sealed with the Holy Spirit who enters into us. Now later in Acts chapter 2, the spirit of God is then poured out in fullness upon these same disciples who are already indwelt with the Holy Spirit because of this experience right here. So when Pentecost happens and the Spirit is poured out upon them, they are already indwelt with the Spirit because of this experience there. They are baptized or empowered with the Spirit as a subsequent experience. Jesus refers to it as the baptism of the Spirit where they are endued with power from on high to become witnesses for him. And this is what they then experienced later on, supernatural empowerment to be servants and to be the church as they're then experiencing that baptism that comes later on. Now, once they're spiritually illuminated, Jesus briefly then tells them what they're going to go out into the world and share. Verse 23 says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, certainly we know only Jesus can forgive sin. As we study the Bible in context as a whole, we understand that only God can forgive sins. Jesus being God and the one who died for sin is the only one who can forgive sins. So what does he mean here? Well, very simply, Jesus was just conveying to them, certainly not that they had special power or authority as the apostles or disciples to be the ones in control of with their religious authority of who could be forgiven of sins and who they were going to withhold forgiveness from. I mean, that is just heresy and completely contradictory to all of Scripture to think that Jesus would give that right to any human being. Jesus was simply telling them they now have authority to announce to people 
on his behalf as his representatives being sent into the world by the power of his spirit to announce to people how their sins can be forgiven and to be able to say to someone as we all can with authority from Jesus if you receive Jesus Christ as the savior for your sin and believe upon him your sins are forgiven and as well to be able to announce and declare if you choose to reject Jesus Christ and if you refuse Jesus as your savior then I declare to you on the authority of the word of God as an ambassador of my Lord your sins are not forgiven and you are under the judgment of God and will experience that so here Jesus is informing them that they would have the authority not to forgive sins but to announce to people to declare to people how to be forgiven of sin and whether they were or whether they weren't in relation to their response to Jesus well verse 24 notice what happens Thomas it says called the twin one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came so for some reason Thomas was absent during that Sunday meeting when the disciples had this really wonderful experience with Jesus now we are not told in the Bible why he wasn't present in that assembly when the rest of the believers were together we're simply informed he wasn't with them but let me please say think about what poor Thomas missed out on because he didn't assemble when the rest of the believers did this poor guy I mean you talk about a bummer for missing a meeting I mean, because he was not present when the rest of the Lord's followers were assembling together for their meeting that day, think about it, truly. What happened in that meeting? Jesus showed up and he manifested himself in a really powerful way and poor Thomas missed that. If that weren't enough, Jesus revealed things and showed things about himself to strengthen the faith of his followers. He assured them of his love in that gathering. Jesus, thirdly, gave instruction and direction for their lives and what they were supposed to do. And Thomas missed out on that. Jesus spoke to them in a very personal way and Thomas missed out on that. And Jesus empowered them with supernatural life. He breathed out the power of his spirit into the lives of his followers when they were assembled for that meeting and poor Thomas missed it. Boy, what a bummer. Can I just say, what a really cool picture the Bible gives us of this, if you would, first Sunday gathering after Jesus resurrects from the dead. I think it's a really great picture, truly, of often what happens when Jesus' followers are assembled for meetings, when we get together, whether it be on a Sunday or any other time when the disciples of the Lord assembled together. I think the same things happen. I think Jesus hasn't changed. I think Jesus wants to show up. I think Jesus wants to manifest himself to his people in a powerful way because he's still alive. I think Jesus still wants to speak to people and I think Jesus wants to give us direction for our lives. And I think Jesus wants to assure us of his love and reveal things to us. And I think Jesus wants to breathe fresh life by the power of his spirit into our lives to help us when we're together to strengthen us that we might leave different because we assemble together and let me just say therefore it does become a fitting reminder of what we often miss when we're not present with Jesus followers when they assemble together for a meeting we miss out we forfeit what the Lord would have done and, and, and we would have experienced because we weren't present 
And, and let's just be very honest. It is a temptation. And we could find various excuses for why at times we are tempted to think we don't need to assemble with the Lord's people. Why we don't need to go to a meeting or can skip a meeting or shouldn't be there when Jesus' followers are assembling together and worldly distractions and the devil's manipulations work upon our flesh to distract us and to deter us and to keep us out of being with fellowship with the people. But always, listen, always realize you're missing something. Always realize that when you're not with the Lord's people or you choose to forsake for whatever reason, you're not just forsaking attendance, you are forsaking spiritual benefit and what could help you personally, spiritually. And you're missing wonderful things that the Lord does and forfeiting spiritual help. Because notice what goes on to happen. It says Thomas was not with them and the other disciples, verse 25, it says there, Therefore said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. So what happens? Thomas shows up and they say, oh, oh man, you missed the best service, dude. You should have seen what happened last Sunday. Oh my, and imagine here they're trying to tell Thomas about this spiritual experience. Thomas, the Lord showed, I mean, just, it was, we were in the room and the doors were shut and all of a sudden out of thin air, poof, just Jesus just showed up. And then he showed us his, his marks in his hands and, and we saw the scars and, and, and Thomas, then he spoke to us and told us that we're now going to be sent into the world. And then Thomas, we had this incredible experience that we've never had before with the Spirit of God. And Jesus just breathed the power of the Spirit into our lives. And here they are probably with their words trying to recount this to Thomas as perhaps we might as we're excited about some meeting that we had together at a church service or with the Lord and trying to tell someone else about it. Well, Thomas then answers in response, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side. Boy, Thomas, you're demanding. I will not believe. Notice, Thomas pretty stubbornly says here, people call him Doubting Thomas. I don't know if that's a fair estimation there of when you read the text. He's pretty adamant here. He's not saying, I cannot believe. He's not saying it's really hard to believe. He pretty emphatically simply says, I will not believe unless Jesus meets my demands, unless the Lord does this. Now, please notice again, not only did he miss a wonderful thing Jesus did, but let's be honest, Thomas is kind of struggling spiritually now, but isn't he? I mean, if you look at Thomas's attitude and his words here, he's not just wrestling with a little bit of doubt. He's actually a little bit hard hearted at the moment. He's being a little bit prideful and stubborn and a bit selfish and pretty adamantly saying, I refuse to believe unless Jesus meets my demands. He says, I will not believe. Not I can't believe. He's saying, I will not believe. And he's actually sort of somewhat demonstrating a struggle going on in his heart. Well, verse 26 says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. So the idea is we're at the next Sunday now. Next Sunday rolls around. But this time it says Thomas was with him. And I bet he was. After that last church service, nobody wanted to miss this one. I mean, after what happened last time, word got around. So they're all together. Thomas is there this time. He, just in case, he wants to make sure, no doubt, 
And look what happens. It says, verse 26, and Jesus came, again, the Bible says, the doors being shut, same thing, and stood in the midst and said to them, peace to you. So just like last time, Jesus steps right into the midst of the meeting again, out of the spiritual dimension, into their physical dimension right there. And look what Jesus does, verse 27. He said to Thomas, reach your finger here, Look at my hands, reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So Jesus addresses Thomas directly with the very things that he said, that he was very adamant and stern about. And I have to say, that must have been a pretty humbling and overwhelming experience for Thomas. And and please take notice of the love and the grace of Jesus. After what Thomas said, well, he could have shown up and said a few other things. I'm glad I'm not God. But he doesn't. He doesn't embarrass him or disgrace him or try. Instead, you want to talk about gracious and loving. Jesus gives him this special firsthand appearance and mercifully, look what he does. He meets Thomas right where he's at. He says, Thomas, look, reach right here, Thomas. See for yourself, Thomas. Reach here. Understand it for yourself. Experience it for yourself. Put your hand there, he says, and consider the extent, really, that Jesus goes to here to personally win over Thomas, to help him spiritually. You want to talk about the love of our Lord and how patient and persistent he is with people? The extent that Jesus goes to, let's be honest, to bring people to faith in him, How he will work so diligently, so patiently, he's so persistent because Jesus wants people to believe in him. What is Jesus' plea at the end of verse 27? Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believing. And boy, Jesus is so compassionate and, and our Lord, how far he will go, true? How far he will go to reveal himself to people for just one individual. That should give us tremendous hope for people who are so concerned that haven't turned to Jesus yet. Look how far Jesus will go to reach somebody. He stoops down. He meets Thomas right where he's at. He makes a special guest appearance and addresses Thomas specifically because he is so loving. And this just reminds us how Jesus' heart is to reveal himself to people, to meet them right where they're at, to let them see for themselves. Well, Thomas, in response is totally humble. Look at verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. He is completely humbled as a man. It makes a powerful procession of Jesus' lordship and his deity. He calls him God, which means he's creator and controller. And he calls him Lord, which means he's the one who rules and therefore should be submitted to. But more than that, and please don't miss the language, Notice it's a personal profession of his own faith directed towards Jesus. The emphasis is on the first word, my Lord and my God. Thomas is saying, you are the one who created me and therefore you are the one who I should submit to. I should surrender to you. You are my Lord. I'll tell you, something powerful happens when a person no longer just casually agrees with what's true of Jesus in a general sense, but they come to a place, a crisis moment like Thomas here in the Bible, 
where they believe and express to Jesus personally who Jesus is to them because they've had their encounter with the Lord. And they come to a place like Thomas where it becomes personal. Listen, please, please hear me. When belief goes from not, he is the Lord, but it goes to you are my Lord. A lot of people will say, yeah, he's the Lord, he's the Lord, he's the Son of God, but there's a big difference. Something powerful happens in the transition of your heart when you come to the place where you go, you are my Lord. You're my Lord. And something transforms as Jesus is enthroned upon the human heart when that kind of experience happens. And I would simply say, has that happened yet? I'm glad you're in church this morning, but has that happened yet for you? Where you said, you're my Lord. You're my Lord. You've had that personal experience. Well, Jesus answers him and says, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So from Thomas' experience, one would expect him to believe. But Jesus says there's a special blessing for those without the need of a physical manifestation of Jesus actually still choose to believe in him without having a physical manifestation or proof. Jesus says today as believers, there's a special blessing for those of us who hear the proclaimed gospel and choose to believe. And I don't think the blessing is even just for us. Truth be told, I think it blesses the heart of the Lord. When without demanding proof, we choose to believe upon Jesus, I think that blesses him. And consider this, if you would, in light of Thomas, the fact that Jesus makes that special appearance and he says to Thomas the specific things he does in response to Thomas's words from the meeting prior when Jesus wasn't there. And he says, right here, Thomas, here. What's Jesus indicating? Thomas, I was right there when you were saying all that. And I heard exactly every word that you said. And what Jesus, no doubt, is teaching his disciples here, his followers, by appearing, then disappearing, then reappearing, he's teaching them that though you don't see me with the physical eye, I'm always there in your midst. Just because you don't see me with your natural eye does not mean I'm not there. I was right there, Thomas. I could have stepped in at that very moment. And he's revealing to Thomas and to all of us here that Jesus' presence is always with us. He hears what's happening. He sees what's happening. He's always here to respond. He's in our midst. And Jesus is the unseen guest, listen, at every gathering of the people of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says, whenever two or three gather in my name, I am there in the midst. Often our hearts are just dull. But Jesus is with us this morning because Jesus keeps his word. And we should always remember that reality that Jesus is in our midst every time that we assemble together. We'll look at the closure of chapter 20. It's more of sort of John's epilogue of why he wrote. He just tells us, it says, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So John says, I didn't tell you everything that Jesus has done. In fact, the other gospels give 30 additional plus miracles that John doesn't record. So he's saying, listen, not everything that Jesus did in his life and ministry, John said, that I record. It would take volumes and volumes. John says, I didn't record everything, but these are written, that is the miracles and signs John selected, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Savior, 
and that he's the son of God that is that he's divine and that believing you may have life in his name so John indicates he purposely selected the seven sign miracles he did specifically uniquely to try and strengthen the faith of people to strengthen the faith of Christians that Jesus is the savior and that he is God and that we never have to question that and no doubt as well to evangelize any unconverted person that would read his gospel that Jesus is God and he's also your savior. That by believing we may have life in his name. That's why John's gospel is a great book for those struggling with faith in Christ and needing to come perhaps to a deeper understanding of who he is. And notice it's through belief in Jesus life is received. He says here that by believing you may have life in his name. Hey, can I encourage you this morning? You know what matters to Jesus more than anything? It's not your performance. Believe. Believe. Lord, help my unbelief. Believe, because by believing we receive from Jesus the power and the works and the things of his spirit in our lives. Let's stand together.